We're in Second Peter, and we're in chapter two. We're looking at the subject of false prophets. We'll finish up the text tonight. Um, maybe just kind of walk a little bit through the next week's text. Uh, I'm going to do a bit of reviewing just because it's been a while and I have to remind myself what we're looking at, probably you as well. Uh, by the way, Aaron, I brought my laptop, and so if you have a chance to look at it later at the back, we'll take it just a minute. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us and for your mercy and your grace. You are so, so good to us, and I thank you so much for your mercy, for loving us, providing for us, for protecting us. We realize that we're in a battle. We've been looking at the subject of false prophets and false teachers. We've seen how your judgment has been leveled against them and how your hand of protection has in the midst of the false prophets in our in the churches you have protected your, your people. Thank you for that. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the, the planning tonight for the Vacation Bible School as well, Lord. We do appreciate that. Um, 25 years, that's, that's, that is an encouragement, a uh, challenge to us. You have been faithful every single year, and we are just so thankful to you for who you are and for what you're doing and for the privilege that you've given to us to be laborers together with yourself. We were singing the invitation of who is on the Lord's side. We, uh, actually, you've chosen us to be on your side. And we are so delighted and so happy that you have, and we want to cooperate with you in every way possible. So I pray that you will take this time tonight and use it in us and use us for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, your thanksgiving. Amen. In this text, Peter has been writing about the reality and judgment of false prophets and his um, plan of attack in this, these verses has been, we've sort of followed it. First of all, he's given a warning about false prophets and false teachers. Let me read those verses, verses 1 through 3a. The warning was that he said false prophets also agree arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. We looked at that, we talked about that, we saw his Peter's warning, and then we saw the illustration that followed, in which Peter gives a display of God's wrath, which would provide lessons for us to see how God does, in fact, judge this kind of activity, beginning in verse 3b, there, that is, the false teacher's judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them, pits of darkness reserved for judgment, 
and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, pressed by sensual conduct of unprincipled men, about what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their, by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who just who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. In this passage, as we come to the conclusion of it, just two things that I would say as we begin to look into it. First of all, uh, he, he gives us a picture, kind of a lesson, if you will, from biblical history judgment that those lessons will stand out as illustrations of how God judges. We've used the illustration in our discussions about the lessons of, of punishment in, in school classes and other things and that those lessons have stuck with me and they will stick with other people. And so in this text here, since God does not spare the angels that sin, that's first of all, and secondly, since he did not spare the ancient world, and third, since he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the conclusion that we can make the conclusion is that he is very capable of bringing judgment upon sinners. And that is true, especially with false prophets and false teachers. Sometimes and we're going to be talking about uh, those who revile angelic uh, majesties and despise authorities, and they don't seem to take the authorities that, that God has placed seriously. But... God is able to judge, and he will judge, and he's made it clear. And so this needs to be taken seriously. Secondly, not only is God able to judge, but he also, since he preserved Noah um, and Noah's family through the flood, that was judgment that came upon the world, he was able to preserve the family, Noah and his family. And since he rescued righteous Lot, who in the middle of that, that uh, perverted society was oppressed by sensual conduct, he is also able, in the midst of judgment, to preserve the righteous. He's able to bring judgment upon false, false teachers and false prophets. He's able to bring destruction upon them, and at the same time, to preserve the righteous that belong to him in the midst of that judgment. And so that's important. Now, when we come to the text, and I'm going to finish, want to finish it up, verses 9 through 10, kind of to get through this, we looked at it before. I'm just going to quickly jump through it. Three words. First is the word temptation, which he uses there in the text. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Uh, we'll look at that word and just touch on it. And then secondly is the word judgment. Um, he is able to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And third is the word corruption, which uh, kind of appears down at the beginning of verse 10, especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. Those three words, we've already looked at that. And so I don't want to belabor it too much, but I just think it's good to kind of review in our minds. We talked about temptation or trials uh, or testing. All of those come from the same word. It's used when, when, when tests come from the Lord. They test us to prove 
our strength and help us to grow. When temptation comes from the devil, that temptation comes with the intention of making us stumble. The same word is used for both in both cases. It's used, for example, in James. When James talks about consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. This is that these trials that come that they give us a test, or the or the when the trial comes from God, that test helps us to grow and makes us endure. If Satan sends tests our way, it is to cause us to stumble and to try to make us fall. Um, but in either way, James says we are to count it joy when you go through these trials because these trials come from the hand of God with the desire to help us grow and mature. When things like that happen to us, it is easy for us, and, and I'm just as bad as anybody else. It's easy to think, well, what has happened? The world is falling apart. Things are happening that I don't like. But yet God is in charge. He's absolutely sovereign. He oversees, he overlooks the lives of his children, and he makes sure that we are stable. He makes sure that the things that come across our path are things that we can endure and that will help us to grow. And so it's important um, that these things take place and these things help us grow. No temptation, says 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation, no trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. That is, that this is what's going, what you're going through may be extreme, may be totally different, may be something completely different from something that you've had before, a trial of difficulty, but it is not, you're not the first person to ever go through that, and you're not going to be the last, and uh, God uh, oversees those temptations so that he is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested or tempted beyond what you're able but will, with the temptation or the test, provide a way of escape so that you will be able to do it. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you, upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. I feel the first person to go through it. <laughs> it's not. Um, but to the degree that you're able, you share in the sufferings, or if you could, you could actually translate that, the degree you're able to share in the pains of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why? He says, so that uh, after you, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. In other words, the trial here will end up one day when we stand before him rejoicing because we will have growing and it will be improving productive. Suffering does that. Suffering helps us to grow and matures us. So that's the first thing. That's the word temptation. Uh, it's important. The second word quickly is the word uh, judgment. Uh, we've talked about that as well. Uh, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice sin, practice things. Um, we understand that. We know that um, Paul talks about the, the, in the day that uh, you think, don't think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. God is patient with us, and his kindness should lead us to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. We say that. But I'm saying that uh, the scripture says that God does have does display wrath, judgment. And uh, he can bring that uh, upon us 
he will render, Peter, um, Paul goes on to say, he will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and indignation. Is it, are you saying that God then, that we work ourselves, um, work for or earn our salvation? No. But he is saying that we can be judged by our deeds because our deeds will show the reality of our faith. If we really say it will be displayed by our deeds. There is a judgment coming. And God makes it clear that he can bring judgment. We don't want, you know, one of the things that, that bothers me about myself is that I can be a hypocrite. Now I pass to a church. And I stand up here and I can talk a lot about the scriptures and stuff like that. But you don't know what's in my heart. You don't know what, you know, you don't know what goes on in my mind and my life unless I tell you. And, it, and I don't tell you everything that goes on. And I can pretend to be a real spiritual person and yet not be. You understand what I'm saying? And hypocrisy, that is something that Jesus condemned severely. Was the religious leaders who proclaimed themselves to be one thing in public but they were something totally different in private. And I don't want to do that. I know you don't want to do that. And so it's, it's important. There is judgment. God will judge. He's serious about that. Matthew, we talked about that. Jesus said, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account of in the day of judgment or by your words. That is what comes out of your mouth. You will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. What comes out of your mouth? What is Isaiah? When Isaiah stood before the Lord in Isaiah 6, and he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he said, um, I'm a wretched man, I'm undone, I have a dirty mouth, and I dwell among the people who have a dirty mouth. What comes out of the mouth is what's in the heart, and it's a reflection of what's in the heart. That may be a good thing for us to think about what comes out of our mouth. A lot of times we say things that we shouldn't say in public, that maybe it should be better kept unsaid. So um, this is important. What comes out of our mouth tells us what's in our heart. Okay, now let's look at the third one. And the third is the subject of corruption. I want to spend a little more time on that. Uh, the false teachers are those who indulge the flesh with its corrupt desires. And I've been thinking a lot about the flesh. Probably Paul talks about that. And uh, I remember when we were talking about Romans, Romans 8, he talks a lot about the flesh. Let's look at that for a minute. Romans Turn to Romans 8, 3. Uh, he talks about the law and uh, the, what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh. The law is God's standard, but the flesh is that which is weak. It's, uh, it, it's, uh, it distracts. It weakens the, the commitment. The law reveals the weakness of the flesh, if you will. And so what the law could not do, though it was weak, God did through sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he's not in sinful flesh, but in the likeness, he, he, he bore this, uh, he came in a body just like we are, and he, but he was not a sinful person, but he came in the flesh just like, just like us, um, and uh, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, that's just in passing, that's an interesting statement that he came we know it's true, but it's, it's interesting to see it in writing. There it is. He came as an offering for sin. 
And he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law, which is God's standard, and it does make a requirement, the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the, the spirit. So that we have here the flesh, and we have the spirit, and we know that the two are contrary. We know that from scripture. And so we can walk in the flesh, and I struggle with that every day, and probably you do too, or we can walk in the spirit. We can, the spirit of God can give direction and oversight, and we can, he can, the spirit can bring scripture to mind, things that we ought to think about, things that we ought to direct our thoughts, things we ought to pray for, people we ought to pray for, things that my wife was always very sensitive about that, much more so than I am. I'm kind of a klutz, but she, she would say, I've been thinking a lot about Tom. Really, I've been praying for him all day. And sure enough, on well, the weekend, we'd be talking, and Tom had been going through some pretty difficult times and stuff like that. He's very sensitive about that. If you're sensitive about that, pray for him. Let that be a, a good thing because God is, that's a good thing that God is wanting to tell you about your heart, to be sensitive about things like that. Um, and so here he says that um, those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. So that you live according to the flesh, your mind, your attention, your focus, your attraction has been based on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. So this is a good good thing for me to think about, to focus my attention, my mind on the things of the spirit rather than the things of the flesh. I read a book um, several years ago called The Disciplines of Life, and I never really thought about things like prayer and Bible reading and uh, witnessing and church attendance and things like that as being disciplines of life, but they are. They're the disciplines of the Christian life. And you practice those things. No matter what you do, everything in life requires some degree of dedication and commitment and pursuit, whether it's living for yourself and just watching TV all the time. It requires that kind of wasted effort and pursuit, or if it's working around the house, you ask about the mower and cutting grass over there, it requires that kind of pursuit, or if it's practicing preaching like this, it requires that. Everything requires that, including the Christian life, requires a measure of pursuit, dedication. So he says, set your mind here, uh, set their mind on the spirit, um, and, and he goes on to add to that, which I think is interesting. Those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, the mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the flesh is death. That is, it, it, uh, it kills, what we looked at this morning, that, uh, that a person who uh, loves the world, the things of the world, uh, the love of God is not in. The love of God is not working in his life. The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset of the spirit is life and peace. You want peace in your life? There it is. Set your mind on the things of the spirit. Because the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God and does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot. Please, God. Cannot. So if you're focusing your life on, on the flesh, you cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. 
But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, who the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit, that we probably ought to, MacArthur says, I think it's good, you ought to maybe add in there, talks, the human spirit, because he's not talking about the Holy Spirit is alive, he's talking about the human spirit. The Spirit makes your human spirit alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised up Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are not under obligation. We are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We have the flesh, we have the Spirit, we have the two that are almost contrary to one another. In fact, Galatians, Paul says in Galatians, he, he compares the two, he says, there are deeds of the flesh and there is fruit of the Spirit. The deeds of the flesh are things like, in Galatians 5, 19, evident Things like immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, impurity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, things like this, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the deeds of the flesh. But, not the deeds of the Spirit, that is Galatians 5. 19. But in that same context, Galatians 5.22 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. And he doesn't say the fruits, because all of these things are part of the byproduct of the Holy Spirit in your life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, patience is a good one for me, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. And I've talked to you about that. Sometimes I don't want to die. The old flesh wants to keep popping back up and standing back up again. But they have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we are alive by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is active in our lives. He uses the word. We want to obey him. The word comes to mind, gives us wisdom and direction and uh, how we want to live. It's very important. Um, now he goes on to this text then that we're looking at, and I just want to, I don't want to lose my place in the text. He said, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation to keep uh, the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh with its corrupt desires and despise authorities. Let's talk about despising authorities for just a minute. Um, all authority that exists comes from God. We know that. We don't. We don't have a hard time with that. And we know that the scripture tells us that we are, for example, we, Paul tells us in Romans and First Peter, First Peter 2 is a good one. Submit yourself to the Lord's sake to every, every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as set by him for the punishment of evildoers and praise of those who are right. Government authorities are there. We are to submit to them. But there are those, those false teachers that have rejected authority. They reject the authority. In fact, 
in that that uh, the idea there has to do with, with uh, to some degree, with rejecting the lordship of Christ. That, that they reject the authority of God over their lives, and that they are, what did Jesus say? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you're a law unto yourself. You reject any kind of oversight, any kind of law from God, and you do what you want to do, how you want to do it, where you want to do it, and you're your own law, your own standard. You're going to be, one day you're going to stand before the Lord, he's going to say, depart from me, but I never knew you. And that's, that's kind of a serious, that's sort of a serious thing. And so these, these false teachers and false prophets are kind of a, they despise authorities. They want to do their own thing. They want to have their own uh, leadership, their own, do it their way. Um, as the song, the song said, I, used to, I did it my way. He's not doing it his way now. And so the Psalm 2 is another one, and I want to read that. So you can take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 2. And we won't do, we'll stop at this point. I won't get into it further. But I want to look at Psalm 2 just for a moment because I think this is an important psalm um, that talks to us a little bit, if you will, about rebellion of the false teachers and how they rebel against the Lord. Psalm 2, among the other things, has to do with... <laughs> I don't know whether to say it has to do with opinions about authority or the declarations about authority or what people say about authority, but it seems to have to do with opinions. So let me just look at it. This is Psalm 2. This is, you're familiar with the Psalm, but you probably never thought about it like this. But this, let me read it to you, and we'll talk about uh, what it's saying, because it's really a very, very, very powerful text. Psalm 2, beginning verse 1, says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising an empty or vain thing? Then you have some very important people. Kings of the earth, what is their opinion? They take their stand. And the rulers of the earth, what is their opinion? They take counsel together. Both of these, the kings and the rulers, have taken their counsel, taken their stand. What is it? It is against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed. So here you have the opinion of the kings and the rulers. They have taken their stand. They have taken their counsel. They have come together. Their counsel is against the Lord and against his anointed. And they say, let us tear their fetters apart apart, and cast away their cords from us. This is their opinion. This is what they've done. Let's get rid of these shackles. Well, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, all right, now here, and all of a sudden in this verse, it shifts, and now we are hearing from the Messiah himself. Verse 6, but as for me, I have installed, no, he, he's, he's talking about the God the Father, I have installed my king upon my holy mountain. I will surely de- declare or talk about the decree of the Lord. Here's what he's saying. He's saying to me, you are my son. This is God's opinion of his son. You are my son. I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations of your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shall shatter them like earthenware. So here is 
God the Father now. He's talking to the Son of God the Father had said to him, this is the opinion of the Father. I have installed my king upon Mount Zion, my holy mountain. I will tell of his decree, the decree of the Lord. And then the son says, you said to me, you're my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations of your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Do you get the idea that he is a special place in the eyes of the father? You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them as earthenware. Now the, the, the passage turns and talks to the kings and those that we've been talking to before. Now, O kings, you need to show some discernment and you need to take some warning, O judges of the earth. What is it? Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he did not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed, fortunate to be envied for all who take refuge in him. He is the source. He is the place of refuge. He is the, the one who provides the security. He is the, the object of the love of the Father. He is the one that the nations have said, we will not have him reign over us. And yet he is the one, he is the object of God's love and God's care. He is the one that is going to inherit the kingdoms of the earth the ends of the earth is his possession. He is the one, when he says, kiss the son, he's just talking about embracing the son, loving him and seeking him and serving him. That's a good word for us in closing his. We're looking at the flesh and the spirit to see the, the opinions that God has about his son and how we should be responding to him. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge the flesh with its corrupt desires and despise authority, despise that word authority has to do with lordship, despising the lordship of God over them. Um, God's judgment will come. Now next week we'll start and we're going to be talking about the evaluation of false teachers. He begins daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas the angels who are greater in might and power do not bring reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these false teachers, that's what he's talking about, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, resulting, see here, reviling where they have no knowledge will, in the destruction of these creatures, also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. He goes on to talk about that. I'm not going to read it. Not going to look at it. I'm going to look at it next week. I, I don't want to. It's kind of confusing there if we don't take some time to slow down there. So we'll do that next week. But the, the lesson today, tonight, has to do with false teachers. God bringing judgment as well as he's able to preserve those that are his in the middle of the judgment. And that he's able to uh, help us in the middle of that judgment. That's, that's really important. Any thoughts or comments on it before Pete? Heard a week, um, <clears throat> year back or so, how many times in the New Testament we are warned one of two things. Either we are warned about false teachers, or it warns false teachers, like kind of like here, it, it directly. 
In other words, there's so much weight given in the New Testament to the seriousness of false teaching, which is a little surprising given how many churches put a lot of weight on other things like, you know, uh, living a good life, or paying your tithe, or, um, you know, or staying away from alcohol or your illicit sex, other things like that. If you were to listen to most messages, you would think the New Testament would but there's so much weight, surprisingly, maybe in a way, given Peter, Paul, John, all of them, the Gospels, Jesus really went after, heavily after the false teaching of his to the, the leaders and, and just warning them. Um, it's, it's, it's quite astounding how much God takes that very seriously, how much warning it is, as, a, as opposed to the biggest sins, quote unquote. Yeah, especially with teachers, it talks about teachers being yeah. Anything else? Um, Father, thank you for the warnings. Uh, Pete mentioned in his right scriptures. We raced through this real fast, but it's so serious. It really is. Thank you for uh, your goodness to us. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for Peter, just an ordinary fisherman. Um, we would not think to look for his name in a who's who collection of famous people normally. And yet because of his commitment to you and what you're doing in his life, he has become one of the leading apostles of the 12 apostles of the church. And uh, by your Marvelous mercy and grace, you have worked in his life. You've worked in the lives of the apostles. And even more amazing to me is that you have worked in my life, in our lives. If you desire to use us, if we will submit to you. And you've told us to set our minds and our hearts on things above, to things that matter, not to walk in the flesh but to allow your spirit uh, and to obey the word that the spirit teaches us to follow you. Help us to do that. Help us to, as we were looking this morning, um, that no man can serve two masters. He will serve the one and hate the other. That being a passage that helps us to explain how you have said that we We don't. Uh, we can't be your disciple if we don't hate our mother, father, wife, brothers, sisters. It's not that we hate them; it's that we put you first. You want us to do that. You've told us to do that, and that will be sometimes interpreted by them as a form of hatred. But it isn't. Uh, it's just that the priority is that you should come first. It is easy. It is easy to say. It is not easy to do. At least it's not. And so I just pray that you'll, you'll help us to really take you seriously, to follow you faithfully. And thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for your patience with us and for your love for us and for your working in our hearts and our lives and for teaching us these things and helping us to be faithful. Help us not to be false teachers. Help us not to play fast and loose with the truth that is eternal, but to be faithful. 
to be students and to apply your word to our hearts and lives. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the church. I ask your blessing and direction in the coming days. We see uh, things going on around us that are uncertain, but there is one place where everything is certain, and that's with you. And we are so thankful for that. You are our rock and our anchor within the veil. And we are thankful, we're so thankful to you for that. Give us a good week, help us to follow you and to be faithful and use us for your glory. Pray for the preparation for the Bible study next week. You'll be with Larry as he's preparing and to bring those out that should be here. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanksgiving. Amen. Yeah.